Hello there, this is Mark Bauerline with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today Sumantra Maitra. He is senior contributor to The Federalist, and he's a non-resident fellow at the James G. Martin Center in North Carolina. I think, Sumantra, I've seen your writings also in Quillette. Is that correct? That is correct, yes. Yeah, so... Uh, uh, we can, we can look you up and see your commentaries in, in numerous sources. Uh, one thing, you co-authored a recent report for the James G. Martin Center with Joy Pullman entitled Witches and Viruses, the Activist Academic Threat and the Policy Response, uh, which I want to spend a few minutes about that, but then we will get to the main part of our program, which is you, you live in the UK, and I'm going to ask you, what, what is the scene? What do you see now relative to two issues, one, the pandemic, and to the, the riots and protests that are taking place in the U.S. and in, in some parts of Europe. So, first of all, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Thank you, Mark, for having me. I believe we last talked last year in July in D.C., uh, so it's been a while. So thanks for having me. Good, good. Well, uh, this report that you did with the title, Witches and Viruses, the Activist Academic Threat, and a policy response. Just give us a quick summary. That's on the James G. Martin website, uh, the center website. Give us a an overview of what the gist of that report was. Right. So uh, I we have been studying. You know, we have been reading a lot of books and reports about how activist uh, disciplines have kind of hijacked in different departments in academia, but there wasn't much research on how on, on a policy level on how to how to change or how to balance that how to redress that problem so joy and i we decided that we are going to write a report there were two articles uh, that came out last year and the year before there were two feminist literature saying how feminism is like viruses spreading out through academia and the second one talked about how feminism is full of witches like it's like a coven um, to disrupt traditional uh, fields of academia. So Joy and I, we studied those two research papers that came out and we reviewed them and we came out with policy suggestions of our own on how to, number one, imitate that kind of you know, model. Um, so, for example, different conservative students in academia, they could be like viruses, they could disrupt traditional uh, you know, leftist um, disciplines. And the second for the boards and the governors on how they can defund or, or, or the policymakers, for example, on how they can defund um, all these fields, which are activist uh, departments, um, which should, shouldn't use taxpayers' money, for example. Now, just in the last couple of weeks, 
uh, Sumantra, since your paper came out, the activist side of academia has exploded because of the uh, the situation in Minneapolis and spreading around the country, the protests and the riots, the academics are in high gear. The, act, the activist figures in the departments, and they, they really do have the administrators now intimidated in a way I've never seen before in my entire academic life. And the sort of the moderate liberal faculty members on in, in academia, they're, they're not saying a word to, to stop this. Do you, would you, would you want to revise your thesis about how, say, conservatives might enter into the academic scene as viruses or witches? Does the present push, a, ver a stronger push than I've ever seen, before that really insists upon issues like quotas in hiring and the evaluation of people's research on ideological grounds. I mean, frankly, ideological, not academic, but ideological grounds as, uh, as perhaps leading to people's censure or punishment if they're taking the wrong side on certain issues, even if the evidence has led them there, would you, would you alter your policy prescriptions in any way? Right, so I have, so I have two things to say. Um, first of all, Saurabh, uh, who writes First Things, you, I'm sure you know him, he wrote a recent article that came out that said that the, everything that we're seeing now is kind of like an elite-driven revolution. So this, yeah, so, so, and that's a very important point to consider when we are talking about activist academics, for example. Everything that we are seeing now, we have this understanding um, in the center-right and right circles that, uh, you know, there are liberals in academia and they are cornered by radicals. That, yes and no. Um, as anyone who has worked at universities, for example, they would know, I'm sure you know, I have absolutely seen it myself, there are two ways through which, you know, scholarships and fundings and committees are decided. Number one, on the research output. So, for example, the number of research papers one can come out. Now, because of, you know, all these interdisciplinary things and departments that kind of snowballed in the 90s, most of the research that these people come out with, they are self-referential. So if I studied feminist geography, I go into a department, I come out with seven different research papers, which are absolute garbage. But at the time when the tenure is decided, the decision is based on the number of research papers that I came out with, compared to a normal person who did geography, who got published in like, what, two articles or something. So at the end of the day, the committees, the departments are giving rise to the, on the basis of seniority, on the basis of the number of research papers that someone comes out with, these are all self-referential research that comes out. You know, these are all activists. They're, 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 they've got no policy recommendations. They've got no policy relevance. And these are the people who get picked up in positions of power. The second thing which they do is they then try and shape the university departments in their own ideological. You're, you're absolutely right. This is an ideological power play. The second thing which I want to point out about is 
we have this understanding that you know these are radicals and they're ignorant and or these are radicals and they're just incompetent and they've got the liberals cornered but what if it's not that it's 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 somewhat different than that so for example uh, when we see these new people in new york times trying and deciding how editorial policies are going to be we have this understanding that maybe the editors are afraid of these new people, but what if they're not afraid? What if they're just complicit in what's going on? Same with the universities. We see that all these radical students and all radical professors, how are they getting their power? What if the boards and the governors and the departmental heads, they're all complicit in this thing? So that's something which one needs to think about. So the, so the policy prescription is, you know, you have to think essentially like, the activists think in departments. If they are disrupting traditional academic disciplines, then you have to disrupt their way of thinking as well. Conservatives need to fund their own disciplines. They have to come out with their own research and journals. So that was one of the policies which we prescribed uh, in that research paper that we came out. Yeah. I think you are onto something very important when you talk about the research that the activists produce is voluminous. And it is, it is heavy because the activists have entered the peer review process. That, that, and, and, and that makes it easy to get published. That makes it, and, and there are many journals in which you can get published and you can call it peer reviewed, but it really, as you said, it's, it's an insider game. It's self-referential. Nobody looks at it except the others in that field, but yes, it meets the productivity goals of, of promotion and, and hiring. Yeah, and I'm not, you know, I, I, I've seen that happen. And I think the corruption of the peer review process is maybe the, maybe the worst thing that, that has happened here. But anyway, uh, so people can go read your, your research, uh, your policy prescription on this at the Martin Center. So let's turn to the, the UK situation now. Uh, we're, we're taping this uh, July, you know, the first week of July. Uh, tell us, give, give us an overview of what the pandemic situation is in your country. Well, the pandemic situation is, it's sort of mixed. So on one hand, we have, uh, the number of people who are dead is higher compared to a lot of other countries. But on the other hand, the comparison is also, one also needs to keep in mind that the percentage-wise death is a lot lower in UK compared to Spain or Italy, for example, because the number of population in total is a lot higher in UK. Uh, so that's one thing. Secondly, uh, I think I think the number of people who are, you know, the, the, the average, you know, number of death is has kind of stabilized in the last um, last last month, month and month and a half. Uh, we have moved to what we are saying, the second phase uh, of, of the of the of the quarantine. And, you know, the pubs are opening up. There are lots of things which are happening. The trains traveling uh, are, are traveling on time. So that has kind of normalized. But overall, it's still mostly uh, in a lockdown. The schools are not, you know, completely open. So it's it's still a phase reopening. It's better than what it what it was uh, a few months back. 
there is a sense of normality around uh, the cafe next to my house, for example, has opened up. They're giving takeaways, but at least you can go and get your stuff out there. So, so yeah, it, it's it's slowly it's slowly started to open up. And is the general feeling shifting away from fear and toward impatience? Let's say, hundred percent. I mean, this is one thing which. Uh, which one needs to understand if they live in the UK, that the general feeling of fear was not really there unless you read the newspapers. You know, if you go out and if you talk to your neighbor, for example, there was pretty much like a stiff upper lip. You know, I mean, yes, there is a quarantine going on. You have to, you know, chin up and carry on. But on the other hand, if you read the newspapers, for example, you know, there was this, oh, the entire economy is going to crash. You know, people are going to die this is the greatest threat to human lives um, in the in the UK since the Second World War. But nothing of that sort was happening if you're talking to your neighbor or if you're going out to the grocery store, for example, and talking to the people who are selling stuff. So uh, there was this disconnect between what was, I, I, I don't want to use the term propaganda, but what you were reading in the newspapers and then what you were actually seeing around you. So that, So that's an important thing to, to keep in mind. Has the pandemic, in in this regard then, has the pandemic aggravated a tension between, well, just to use the general terms, the elite and the people? Completely. Um, I think Peter Hitchens wrote about this. That ha- there, So two things. Number one, there was this threat of pandemic. So, I mean, let's not, you know, we shouldn't think that there was no threat at all. There were people dying. The government or the policymakers who were there at the helm, they have to decide on the spur of the moment. So they were seeing people dying in Italy, for example, in a rapid pace. They were seeing people dying in Spain. They had to decide immediately what to do. So they did what anyone would do in their position. They locked down. But it was also kind of like uh, an over, you know, they could have done it in a, a little different way. They probably could have, I don't know, have, waited out the, the decision on how to do the lockdown you know they could have like kept the schools open for example because young kids are not that much at a risk uh of coronavirus so there was this kind of heightened tension at the elite level and uh one can one can understand why they played uh the way they played it you know they were they were you know trying to also save their own skin but at this point of time, I think there is this massive impatient uh, number of people are saying, like, you know, we have already stopped for like three months. So, you know, it's time to move forward because this because we, there is no under, there is no guarantee when the vaccine is going to come out and you just cannot keep everything locked down anyway forever. So life needs to move on. Relative to the pandemic, how have relations with or general attitudes toward China been affected? Massively. Oh, yeah, massively. Uh, yeah. So when David Cameron uh, came to power, he wanted to put the United Kingdom as a European great power in the front line of relations with China. That's what he wanted to do. He wanted to have Britain as kind of like a balancing power, uh, balancing between European Union, United Kingdom, China, with lots of investment from Chinese universities to, to, to British universities from China, lots of investment in the nuclear sector, in 5G that was kind of like a utopian idea that China is a growing power and UK needs to be in the front line as the frontline European power to kind of invite to be the gateway of Chinese. I, I, I wouldn't I don't want to use the term hegemony, but Chinese influence in Europe. 
Now, that has obviously changed. That changed since Theresa May. Uh, May was kind of reticent about China compared to David Cameron. And obviously, uh, when Boris Johnson came to power, uh, he wanted to keep the 5G, but he wanted to change everything else. But after the pandemic, it is there is this understanding in the in the higher echelons of power in UK that China is not an ally. It's it's not going to be uh, uh, an, uh, with some, some with a great power with which the UK can have any kind of alignments. Five G is a threat to security. Uh, Chinese investments at universities are threats to security. So so that that thing is kind of dawning uh, in, in the in the, in the policymakers. Do people in the UK watch closely what is going on in Hong Kong right now? Just to review this week, uh, China is doing a big crackdown on Hong Kong. Do the UK people watch this closely? Yes, given the colonial uh, legacy, Hong Kong used to be a part of the, of the British Empire. So there is this kind of special understanding of Hong Kong. Yeah, the British government is... Uh, so they had this kind of uh, the people from Hong Kong. They already have the British national overseas national passport. So the British government is also kind of trying to resettle them in the United Kingdom. Uh, Three million Hong Kongers are not supposed to be a huge issue if 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 they're resettled in the United Kingdom or even if they're like redistributed in Canada, UK, US, Australia, for example. So that's a good thing. They are well-educated people. They are, you know, very pro-democracy. It's, it's a, you know, and, and, and Britain has got some kind of like a, a, a colonial uh, a legacy, you know, a kind of responsibility to these people. So there is this understanding in UK, even among the people that, yes, we need to do something about Hong Kong people. They are, you know, struggling. The difference is um, how much can they actually do is still debatable. The intention to help people from Hong Kong is there, but what if tomorrow China stops people from Hong Kong from going outside? I mean, I mean, it's it's kind of like it, it's going to be like a Cold War redux. You know, you, there are people from the Soviet Union; they want to resettle in the West, but they are not being able to let out. There is this kind of iron curtain that is there in Hong Kong now. So even though the British government wants, the British state wants to help these people, um, how much will they be able to actually do it is still a matter of debate. But the intention is definitely there. Let's turn to the other social phenomenon of the moment, especially here in the United States, the protests and the riots taking place in American cities. Is there a general British take? Uh, maybe you could say, is there an elite British take on what is happening in the U.S.? And is there a more popular populist British take on it? I think you just absolutely narrowed it down. I mean, the... the Everything that we are seeing in the UK are elite driven. So all the protests, all the, you know, the roads must fall campaign. It's, it's not it's not reflective of the common people in the United Kingdom. Majority of the people, regardless of their race, they don't get, they don't absolutely care about what's, you know, it's. So in the 19th century, when Britain was the hegemon, for example, there was this cultural flow. Everything that happened in the UK happened throughout the world. U.S. is now in that position. So the cultural politics that happens in the United States, because U.S. is the predominant power of the world, it kind of percolates to Europe. In, in, in a bizarre way, we are seeing people standing in London saying, hands up, don't shoot. How ironic is that? Because British police, they don't even carry guns. You know, they, they, are, they are saying, uh, hands up, don't shoot in Belgium. I mean, I, I don't even know if there are Belgian police. I mean, they have, you know, it, it's, it's, it's ridiculous to think 
the kind of politics that is there in the UK, uh, in the US is reflective of what we are seeing in the US. But they have this common narrative. You see, you read Guardian, you know, you see Black Lives Matter in UK. Most of the people you're seeing protesting in Oxford, for example, who are there in the roads must fall, they're not even black, they're white people. So it's 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 a strange uh, phenomenon which is global, which is very much you know top down. It's I mean the majority of the people in UK, whether they're blacks, Nigerians, or British Indians, or British Pakistanis, British Chinese, you know, I, I you you cannot see these kind of things. It's a it's a very the terminologies which are used are extremely academic, you know the the the, the white privilege theories and all these theories that you can see in communication departments or English departments at universities. And people don't really talk like that. You know, normal people don't talk like that. So and when I go to the store, I don't talk like that. So so, so everything that's happening in the UK is very much academic driven. It's very much elite driven. You see in the newspapers, the, there is a huge disconnect with the normal population. Do, do the elite in England really believe that the United States is a fatally racist country? I don't think it's... The elite in the UK, they don't differentiate between the US and Western civilization per se. If you read the latest book by James Lindsay, he talked about this thing in his book called Cynical Theories. That This is a rebellion against everything that was considered normal before 1968, for example. When you see the kind of rhetoric that's being used by the British elites, it's no different than the rhetoric that you would see in Berkeley or in Princeton. Uh, So everything that was pre-68 is kind of, you know, heteropatriarchal and racist and all that nonsense. And everything that's post-68 is modernist. So... There is no identification that U.S. is essentially racist, but there is this entire idea that everything in the Western civilization before 68 was kind of racist. And we have to have this new order which would get those get rid of those issues which were there. How do the British react when they see films of the mobs tearing down statues? Horrifying. Um, I mean... I was born in India and, you know, I, when I, I moved to New Zealand when I was young and then I moved to UK. So I've been living outside India for a long time now. One of the things which baffled me is when I heard people saying that they need to topple the statue of Napier, General Charles Napier. So if you go to the Trafalgar Square, there's like Napier and Havelock and Nelson and all these statues. Napier is important for colonial history. Because Napier was the guy who abolished the practice of sati in India, uh, that is widow burning. So Napier was walking in India and there were a bunch of people who surrounded him and said, like, you know, we have this custom when a guy dies, we burn their widows. And Napier said that, you know, you have that custom and we have a custom of our own. If you burn a widow, we build a gallow and we hang you. So you follow your custom and we are going to follow ours. Now, majority of the Indian liberals of the 19th century, including Ramon Roy and all those people who are Western educated, they supported the British government in the abolishing of sati. What baffles me as someone who was born in India, living in the UK in 2020, are majority of the UK liberals 
I wanted to tear down the statue of Napier because he was a colonial general. So you, so it's, it's, it's like living in a bizarre world, you know, where the traditional liberal principles are turned on its head. So when we see this, you know, statues being toppled of Napier and Nelson, I mean, we are speaking in English now, you and I, it's because of Nelson, otherwise we'd be speaking in French. So it, it's, it's absurd to see that there is this completely ignorant, ahistoric bunch of people who have got no sense and no understanding of the nuances of history. And they just want to, they just want, it's, it's a revolutionary zeal, right? So they don't really think of what they're doing. And do people, elite or populist in the UK, see a warning in the films, the videos of, of the rioting as, you know, this is where, this is where revolutionary zeal is going to go. It's not going to be enough just to argue for the removal of statues of Robert E. Lee, the head of the Confederate Army. It's going to move, it's going to move on into a broader cultural destruction. And then, as you say, aimed entirely at the West. Are people realizing in the UK that this kind of passion to take down the past isn't going to be contained to just bad, you know, what we now see as bad guys. It's going to spread. It's going to, it's going to go much farther than this. Are people, are people in the UK arguing this? Uh, so, so first of all, the, the, there is no populist movement in the UK in the sense that we see in other parts of the world. So for example, Brazil or, um, um, uh, I don't know, in Germany or Finland, for example, or even in the US, the, the people who are traditionally, who would be in the populist segment, they, are, they don't have anyone to represent them in the parliament. The British Conservative Party is broadly to the liberal side of even US conservatives. So you can imagine how liberal they are. And the British Liberal Party, the Liberal Democrats and the Labour Party are just pretty much left. Second thing is, you're absolutely right, revolution has got a momentum of its own. But at this stage in the UK, the chances of a violent revolution or toppling is minimal because numerically there are no numbers, which is one of the reasons why we have to stress to this idea that this is an elite driven project. When you see the statues are being toppled, they are toppled not because of the number of people who are toppling the statues, but because the police is not acting. So the police and the state and the and the mayors and the you know council members they are complicit in this thing if they stopped this wouldn't have happened if they stopped people from protesting and rioting they wouldn't protest and riot the british state is has power to stop what they what they can do the london mayor he has got the power to stop these kind of protests if he wants to he he he's he's refusing to do that that's a different matter and the second thing is, um, so 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 the so the fear in UK is not that there will be a revolutionary mob just burning things and guillotining people, um, but mostly like they're going to put a little bit of pressure 
And then the top down, the elites, whether they're conservatives or liberals, they're just going to buckle down and they're going to change, do the changes as needed. So there is a little pressure on changing curricula in Oxford. And everyone is like, yeah, we have to decolonize the entire English literature department, for example. But that decision is coming from the boards and the governors, not from the people. If, if there was one courageous people saying, no, we are not going to do this, we are not going to uh, change Shakespeare uh, and have, I don't know, Arundhati de Roy uh, in place of Shakespeare, uh, they, no one would be able to do anything about it. You know, uh, the, the, the power still lies at the hand of the boards and the governors. The fact that they are, they are, they are doing this, they're doing the changes, shows that, you know, it's, it's kind of like an elite-driven project. The second thing is, as I mentioned before, one needs to understand that the racial dynamics is not exactly as being portrayed. The number of people who are nominally in the Black Lives Matters movement in the UK, uh, if, I, I don't have any study at this point of time in my hand, but if there is a study that has been done numerically, we would see that it's, it's probably a lot more you know, upper middle class, uh, Oxford, Cambridge educated white people. You know, I mean, if you go and talk to normal people, regardless of their race or class, no one wants to just go and do revolutions, you know, on the streets. They're far more worried about their own family and jobs. So uh, so this is something which I think one needs to complete. I mean, I, I think the same dynamics is kind of there in the U.S. as well. Um, that One needs to hammer, you know, this this important context that, you know, this is not just a black and white it's the difference is much more about social and economic strata in society than racial or you know ethnic identity so i think that's that's an important thing to keep in mind okay sumatra final question which candidate do the british people want to win in the us election in november uh it's it's hard to say i mean uh de depending on where i mean uh, depending on where you are, I think there is this understanding that Trump is, uh, regardless of his policies, is kind of volatile. So, uh, because, I mean, when, when, when we are thinking personally about politics, for example, um, a lot of people agree with what Trump is probably doing. But on the other hand, there is also this idea that, you know, uh, how, how much can you trust that guy? How much can you, I mean, when will he change his policy? So it's very difficult to say. There is not much, um, I think the British people see the US as an ally and they would like to continue that alliance. I think what the British people would want is to have like an Anglosphere kind of alliance that used to be before this entire NATO and European Union thing. Um, so I think they would like to go back to that kind of core five I, the US, UK, Canada, Australia, New Zealand uh, kind of understanding of the world. Um, but they, I, I don't think they, are, they have any such preference per se. Um, it's, it's also quite early to say. I mean, we, we'd probably find out around October um, if there is any kind of preference. All right, Sumantra Maitra, thank you for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.